Welcome to everyone who is uh, viewing this via live stream. Good morning to you, and thank you all for braving uh, the cold here. We're used to this at UBC, right? Um, well, just a moment of admission here. I mean, this is knowing the, the holiness of God. I mean, I'm just completely, I'll just say it up front. I mean, uh, I am just the most unqualified person to be preaching this topic. But before uh, we do that, I, I do want to just take a, a, a moment to talk about the, the cultural moment that we're in right now uh, in the nation. Uh, as Pastor Mark said, the COVID rates are up. And it's not just up here, it's up in Europe, other places as well. And we're not the only ones with an election, okay? We think we're like the center of the universe. We're not. Okay, there are other elections, controversial elections going on at the same time. I mean, they're thinking about doing Brexit without a deal over there in England. Okay, so we're not the center of the universe like we think we are. And the world is not going off kilter, okay? God is in control. Uh, listen to this description of America and see if it sounds familiar. America and the rest of Western culture now seems to be more on the edge of dissolution than on the point of renewal. The cloud of irony hangs over all of our festivities. The situation in this country seems to call for a Jeremiah moment, not a celebration. The worst scandal in our government's history still lingers in our memories. Racial prejudice hidden under the surface of political campaigns, seems intensified by our very efforts to correct it. The crime rate is outstripping police restraint and turning private surveillance into a growth sector. Pornography and violence filled the media, and a host of other social problems run counterpoint with an uncertain e economy. That was how Dr. Richard Lovelace, who's a professor of church history at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, described America in 1976. Well, some social commentators I've listened to, and I need to turn it off, really, uh, like Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, would describe America in very similar terms today. As a matter of fact, Mr. Friedman said recently, last month on CNN, that he's terrified at the real possibility that the U.S. is on the verge of a second civil war if there's not a peaceful election transition. I, on the other hand, am a hopeful person that there will not be a second civil war but hopefully, hopefully, we're on this verge of another spiritual great awakening. Why? Why? Because I think like C.S. Lewis do. Okay, I'm going to start this message with a story from C.S. Lewis. I'm going to use it as bookends and end it with a second story from C.S. Lewis, okay? He, he knows that we Christians, we can't get around. We can't get our mind around these very vague concepts of God's sovereignty and His holiness, okay? What does that mean? 
When we say God is sovereign, what does it mean? So he had to come up with these stories. I mean, he took in these orphans during World War II into his own home, and while they were running around his house doing who knows what, he's writing up these stories to tell them. And one of those stories was the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. So if you're not familiar with that story, please let me introduce it to you this morning as an introduction, okay? Because he speaks into this moment. From the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, there were four kids. Their names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They passed through this wardrobe's portal to find this kingdom of Narnia that's under a spell of a white witch. And she's about as white as you can get, okay? She, she spends her leisure time turning the inhabitants of Narnia into frozen ice statues. That's her hobby, okay? Aslan, the lion, and he's a lion. He is the king of Narnia. Well, he's nowhere to be found, okay? And this is supposed to be his kingdom, He's nowhere to be found when it appears that this king of Narnia has abandoned his kingdom to the white witch. A talking beaver shows up and tells the four children these simple but powerful words. And this is why I'm hopeful. The beaver tells the four children these four words, five words. Aslan is on the move. Those are my encouraging words to you sitting here, you watching this via live stream, as our society stands on the precipice of a, a second civil war and seems to be falling apart at the seams with nobody is in control. But the word would say, God is on the move. Okay? That is what it means when we hear God is sovereign, he is on the move. He is going to return, and he's going to make things right again. Jonathan Edwards, who wrote a lot on the history of revivals in America, and I said Jonathan Edwards is the four greatest theologians of all time. After Luther, Calvin, and St. Augustine comes Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a lot on the history of revivals in America. He said that revival is not some special season of extraordinary religious excitement, okay? It is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life after a period of spiritual decline, which we're seeing. Periods of spiritual decline happens in history because the gravity of indwelling sin keeps pulling us believers first into this formal religion and then the open apostasy. Pastor Nathan Carter, a couple of months ago when he was here, when he, and he preached a great message on 1 John, one of the few last words of John. And, and Pastor Nathan Carter spoke about a great falling away as part of the end times. You're seeing it now. Churches are losing 30 to 40% of their members and attendance during COVID. Periods of spiritual awakening alternate with these periods of decline as God graciously breathes new life into his people 
Every major advance of the kingdom of God on earth is signaled and brought about by a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You see such outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the days of Enoch, when men first began to call upon the name of God. It happened again in the second generation of the Israelites after the Exodus, who conquered the promised land. And when the exiles returned from Babylonia under Ezra and resettled in the land. And then you see a flood of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. Well, Jonathan Edwards wrote about those movements. And what does the spiritual awakening look like in these last days before Christ returns and when he ushers in his kingdom, okay? First, first, this has to happen. There will be a missionary expansion of the gospel until all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's in Habakkuk 2.14. Those 500 or so unreached people groups that don't even have any access to the gospel, they will be reached before the end comes. Jonathan Edwards stressed that the core of any spiritual awakening is not our emotional experiences. Okay? It's a spirit-given understanding of the reality of God which purges our hearts and leads inevitably to a meek, humble, lamb-like, humble spirit that results in an unprecedented outflow of good works. Jonathan Edwards was especially concerned to make clear that our fallen human nature is fertile ground for a fleshly religious expression that is ultimately rooted in self-love. High emotional experiences, a lot of religious talk, empty religious talk, even praising God and experiencing love for God and man can be self-centered, he says, and self-motivated. In contrast, Experiences of spiritual renewal, which are genuinely from the Holy Spirit, are God-centered in character, based on worship, worthiness of God, and appreciation for His worth. That's where the word worship comes from. His worthiness and grandeur that is separated and divorced from any of our self-interest whatsoever. Such experiences will create humility in the believer rather than pride, and it will usher in a creation of a new spirit of meekness, gentleness, forgiveness, and mercy. They leave the Christian believers hungering and thirsting after righteousness and self, instead of self-congratulatory talk. Most important, their end result is the performance of good works of mercy and justice. It was this persistent hunger for God's righteousness that motivated godly men like John Newton and William Wilberforce to work years and years towards ending the evil of the slave trade in 1822, and it ushered England into the Victorian age.
In his famous work on religious affections, Jonathan Edwards established the, the principle that a full-fledged spiritual revival will involve a balance between personal concern for individuals and social concern for others. Remember the great commandment? A revival is not something exclusively spiritual and religious. Edwards insists that the proliferation of religion in the form of a lot of meetings, prayers, singing, religious talk will not promote or sustain revival without corresponding works of love and mercy which will bring the God of love down from his throne from heaven to earth to set up his tabernacle with men on the earth and dwell with them. Dwell with them. Dr. Loveless from Gordon-Conwell, he identified two critically important requirements, preconditions for spiritual renewal. They are these two. And I'm only going to preach on one, okay? Because if I preach on both of them, we'll never get out of here. First is an awareness, an awareness of the holiness of God, an awareness of the holy holiness of God, which we're going to hear today, and an awareness of the depth of our sin, which I'll preach about, you know, at some point in the future. These two elements are necessary preconditions of spiritual awakening because they prepare people's hearts to receive the gospel. John Calvin said that these two factors are essential to that degree of self-knowing which drives a person to seek after Christ, and they're deeply interconnected. You can't divorce the holiness of God and the depth of our depravity as human beings. That's why I struggled with it, not, having, not just getting to preach one and not the other. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self are preconditions of spiritual life because revival involves awakening. What people wake up to in the light of a revival is their own sinful condition and the nature of a holy God. This was the experience of Isaiah, which we will now read beginning with the first verse in chapter 6. So all of that was just introduction. Open your Bibles, uh, or if it's up, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The first verse of chapter 6 identifies the period in which Isaiah saw this vision of God's holiness. It was around 740 years before Christ, 740 B.C., that King Isaiah died. 
It marked the end of a long period of national prosperity in Israel. Okay? Unfortunately, he didn't end well because King Isaiah transgressed against God's holiness by presenting, he presented his own sacrifices in the temple. He reversed his role. That was a role reserved only for priests. And as a result of his contempt for God's holiness, Isaiah contracted leprosy and quarantined, lived in quarantine for the rest of his life until his death. The vision that Isaiah receives is of heaven itself with the Lord sitting up on a throne and high and lifted up. Well, the Hebrew term for Lord is the name Yahweh. It's the name that God revealed to Moses in the wilderness when he said, I am who I am in Exodus 3.14. The Lord is the sacred name of God, the holy name of God, Yahweh. There's an earlier version of this word that translates into a different Hebrew term that's called Adonai. This is probably the most exalted title that the Old Testament used for God. And he's given many titles in the Old Testament, but this is about as supreme as high as you can go. For example, in Psalms 8 we read, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, in Psalms 8.1, which in the Hebrew is, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. The exalted Lord is a common theme that Isaiah would repeat in, 50, in Isaiah 57, 15. He says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And as we see in Isaiah 6, around God's throne, we see angelic beings with superhuman features. Yet they humbly submit themselves before the all-holy God. And I mentioned before, when the Hebrew writers wanted to emphasize something, the importance of something, underscore something, they, they repeat it. In this case, Isaiah repeats it three times. Holy, holy, holy. To overemphasize God's absolute moral purity and separation above his creation. God's holiness was seen elsewhere in the cloud in the wilderness. It filled the tabernacle in Exodus and later in the temple in 1 Kings. Well, we too look forward with hope to the day when the Lord's glory would fill the earth and the whole world will become his sanctuary. That word holy refers to that which is completely foreign, that which is other, that which is different from something else. When the Bible speaks about God's holiness, it refers to his transcendence, to his consuming majesty, to that sense in which God is higher and beyond anything there is in the earthly realm. That which is holy is that which is different. In the Old Testament, because God gave very specific instructions on how to care and maintain the tabernacle, which is the holy place where his glory dwelt. And carelessness and disregard for God's instructions 
does never, ever end well. I'm going to give you two instances. First, in Leviticus 10, Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 5. This is going to trouble for some of you. This is what gives the Old Testament a bad rap, okay? Uh, but you know what? I'm staying in the Old Testament this morning. I'm not even going to quote from the Old, New Testament, Lord willing, okay? We're going to stay in the Old Testament. You're going to understand it. You're going to understand these Levitical ordinances, okay? In Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 5, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. These were priests, okay? These were pastors. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I mean, you dads, what would you do? Verse 4, And Moses called Michelle and Elzaphon, the sons of Azil, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. Verse 5, So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. This is one of the most confusing and troubling accounts in all of scripture you have two you have the eldest of Aaron's two sons okay Nadab and Abihu they carelessly took their censers of their own they put incense in them and they offered strange or foreign fire to the Lord which may have been a pagan practice at that time they sinned by offering fire in their own way. It's like offering up the sacrifices like Isaiah in their own way instead of the way that the Lord instructed. And as a result, they were instantly killed. We go on to read in Leviticus 10 verse 8, 8 to 11. The scripture says, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now some, some scholars seem to think that Nadab and Abihu tried to enter the most holy place. We're talking the holy of holies. The innermost holy place. They tried to enter there after drinking alcohol and both were possibly drunk. We don't know. That's speculation. But the point of the story is that God will not allow his holiness to be violated. 
not even by members of the priesthood, which is Aaron's family. And Aaron wisely, wisely held his peace. I mean, what would you do? He raised no vocal objections against God's justice over the death of his sons. Maybe he was just simply just awestruck. He was just dumbfounded, okay? Verses 8 to 11 there is the only time in Leviticus that God speaks directly to Aaron. When he was, you know, sitting there still in silence. Well, God differentiates the three major roles for the priests, for Aaron. He says it clearly. You're to distinguish between the holy and the common. You're to separate the clean from the unclean. And you're to teach the people the laws of God, my laws. And in verse 9, we read that the priests who are on duty are forbidden from drinking wine and strong drink, presumably so that they can faithfully carry out their responsibilities as the caretakers of God's tabernacle. The bottom line is that a holy God was in their midst. So they are, and we are, to take what he says seriously. The second disturbing story, if that wasn't enough, the second disturbing story concerns Uzzah. Not Uzziah, Uzzah. Uzzah was a Kohatite who, who helped transfer the ark of the covenant in 2 Samuel 6, okay? Now, remember that the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. It was the most sacred vessel in the Holy of Holies, and it had fallen into the hands of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4. I mean, if I do anything today, if you go home this week and you read Numbers 1 to 4, and you read 2 Samuel 6, and 1 Samuel 4, for your private devotion this, this week, I will have done my job. Amen. Just look at it. Look at them in context. Okay? Remember this. The ark's presence in each Philistine city, it caused the people to suffer terrible tumors. So the ark was sent away to another city. Nobody wanted to house it. Would you want to house it? And eventually, the ark was returned to Israel, and then it was brought, it was brought to Baal, Judah, where it would remain for 20 years. Then through a series of amazing, amazing incidents, they're really miracles, King David and his small band of soldiers defeated the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant was then returned to the Jewish people and kept in safekeeping until the appropriate time had come for the Ark to be restored to its proper place in the sanctuary in Jerusalem, the city of David. Well, King David ordered a party. He ordered a huge celebration and called for the Ark of the Covenant to be transferred into Jerusalem. And the people just lined up and down the streets like it was a New England Patriot winning parade or something, you know? They danced, they sang as they saw the procession of God's throne before them. Well, we're told that the Ark of the Covenant was transported by virtue of being placed on an ox cart. 
an ox cart. Now, they, I'm sure they desanitize the ox cart just like we desanitize our cars today from COVID. I'm sure they did the exact same thing and more, all right? They clean this ox cart every inch of it, ritually clean. But it was not the method that the Lord had commanded his people to use. That's where the sin comes in. All right? Earlier in Exodus 25, 14 to 15, and again, Numbers 4, 15, 7 and 9, and Deuteronomy 10, verses 8, 31, 31 uh, verses uh, 9 and 25, God commanded the Israelites in these like four to five instances that the ark should be carried by the Levites using poles placed through the rings on the sides of the uh, on the sides of the ark not on an ox cart and the bible tells us that as the ox cart was making its way through this parade moving down the road the Kohatites, one of whom was named Uzzah were walking alongside it belong, uh, along beside it he protected it he watched carefully over it and in the midst of the procession, suddenly, one of the oxen started to stumble. And the cart began to teeter. And it tilted. It looked as if this holy vessel of God was about to slide from the ox cart and fall into the mud and be desecrated. So instinctively, you and I would have done the same thing. Let's face it. Instinctively, voluntarily, simply by a body re reaction to something, Uzzah stretched forth his hand to steady the ark to make sure that this throne of God would not fall into the mud. And what happened? Wham! As soon as Uzzah touched the holy ark of God, God struck him dead. The tribe of Levi was set apart for God as the family that would be responsible for the priesthood and the matters of the temple and education. Within the tribe of Levi, there were certain other families, and each family was given particular tasks. Kohath was one of the sons of Levi. God separated that family for a specific task. And if you read it in Numbers 4, you'll see what those tasks are. Their job, their whole reason for existence, their life's calling was to take care of the sacred vessels. They were trained and disciplined from childhood with all the prescriptions, meticulous details of the law of God about how these sacred objects and vessels were to be treated. The one absolute non-negotiable principle that every Kohatite had drilled into their brains and into their hearts from the time he was a child was this. This principle, never, 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 ever, ever, ever touch the throne of God. God said, if you touch it, you die. Uzzah touched the holy ark of God. God struck him dead. But we know that the sin 
had begun with the inappropriate way that they had transported the ark. They shouldn't have put a priest into that position. R.C. Sproul asked this insightful question. You're probably asking the same thing. Why? Why did Uzzah do it? Why? He knew. No, there's no, there's no excuse. Okay, he knew. His motive was pure. He was trying to preserve the throne of God from being desecrated by the mud. But here's the presumptuous sin that Uzzah committed. He assumed, he assumed that his hands, his hands were less polluted than the dirt, than the mud on the ground. That was the presumptuous sins. There was Sproul, R.C. Sproul, Sproul said, there, there's, there's nothing about the earth that could, would desecrate the throne of God. The earth is just laying there. The dirt is just laying there on the ground doing what God has called earth to do, being dirt. Okay? It's going to turn to dust when it's dry. Okay? And it's going to turn to mud when it's mixed with water, right? When it rains, it turns to mud, as our folks from Cambodia has shown us. I, it could turn pretty red mud. Dirt obeys the laws of God day in, day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling, there's nothing dirty about the dirt. It was the hand, it was the dirty hand of a man that God said, I don't want it on my throne. In a word, Uzzah broke the law of God and God killed him. And we see David's reaction in 2 Samuel 6, 8 to 9. 2 Samuel 6, 8 to 9. Again, read Numbers 4, go back to 2 Samuel 6. Read it in context. David was angry. Oh, he was angry. Because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And he was terribly afraid of God's holiness. And he said, how can the ark of God, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Like I said, nobody wanted this thing. I mean, do you blame them? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, where it remained for three months. Time does not allow me, and I told you we're not getting into the New, the New Testament. Time doesn't even allow me to talk about the death of uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira for, for lying to the Holy Spirit about the the amount of giving that they gave to the church treasury. Time does not permit me to talk about the death of the Corinthian saints who took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. God's holiness did not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. 
It did not decrease one iota. What did change, what did change was that the tabernacle changed. Okay, yes, we're living in the new covenant now. Brought, purchased by the blood, the precious blood of Jesus, God's own son. He purchased men for God. Okay, we're cleansed by, by his blood. And if you, if you put your faith in him, ask for forgiveness of sins. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're living in, under the, the new covenant. Yes. Okay? But God's holiness has not changed. Do you see a pattern here? A holy God was in their midst. So take what he says seriously. We go back to our original text now in Isaiah 6 and see that one of the most righteous prophets is standing there before God's throne beholding his consuming majesty. And look at his reaction. Just look at his reaction. Verse 5, Isaiah 6. He says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's a prophet who's called of God, set apart, whose words are the very words of God placed in his mouth. And the first pronouncement that he announces is doom, doom upon himself. He says, woe is me. Well, as soon as Isaiah sees the unveiled holiness of God for the first time in his life, Isaiah understood who God is, and the very second that Isaiah understood who God was, for the first time in his life, he understood who Isaiah was. What came out of his mouth was something akin to a primordial scream, where he cursed himself, woe is me, woe is me, I'm undone. I mean, the, the closest thing we have to this in our today's street language is that he's just unhinged. He's beside himself. He's, un, he's like falling apart. He's unglued. Okay? Isaiah's vision of God's holiness was totally overwhelming and he immediately confesses his uncleanness and readily acknowledges that both he and his generation are totally unfit for God. Other Old Testament saints who caught a glimpse of God's holiness have the same reactions. When God appeared to Habakkuk, the prophet said, My lips quivered, my body trembled, and rottenness entered into my bones. Habakkuk 3.16 When God showed himself to Job, Job said, I abhor myself, I repent in dust and ashes, I've spoken once, I will speak no more, I will take my hand and put it upon my mouth. Job 42, 6. As John Calvin said, the consistent report of sacred scripture is that every human being who's ever exposed to the holiness of God trembles in his presence. I mean, this is a concept of God that so many Christians struggle with. I mean, in one of my men's uh, accountability group, one of my men's small group, 
that I meet with at the end of one of our discussions on this subject, after we had listened to all of R.C. Sproul's message, messages on the holiness of God and read his book on the holiness of God, one of, our, one of our saints, and he's a seasoned believer, he said, that is just too negative, guys. I don't like that message. It's too negative. How are we supposed to take that? We just studied a whole month of grace. And now we get to the holiness of God? Are you kidding? I mean, R.C. Sproul was too negative. There's, where's the hope in all that? He was really struggling with it for a whole month. I mean, we, 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 ha we have less of a challenge in understanding God's love, God's mercy, God's faithfulness. We get all that. But His holiness is such a totally foreign concept to us. I mean, how can a loving, compassionate, merciful God be a consuming fire at the same time? I'm going to help you through C.S. Lewis again. Just because you can't, you can't get your hands around it, all right? How, how can God be a consuming fire and yet this intimate heavenly Father? C.S. Lewis knew that you would have problems grabbing that concept. Again, so that's why he wrote Narnia. As we saw earlier, as the, and I'm wrapping up with this, as the four children in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles story, again, their names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, as they set out to explore Narnia, this strange and somewhat frightening new country that is locked under this evil spell of, of the white witch, they come upon these two beavers. They're called Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, actually. Husband and wife who are still faithful to Aslan, the king of Narnia. The beavers assure the kids that Aslan is about to return to set things right, and that prophecy suggests that they have a very important, even central part to play in the drama that's about to unfold. Indeed, they learn that they're actually going to rule with Aslan from, their royal, from Aslan's royal city. Well, faced with all this fearful yet exciting news, the two sisters, who were Lucy and Susan, their thoughts go to what Aslan is actually like. This is what God is actually like, all right? In C.S. Lewis's words, just because sometimes Scripture is too, you know, is too general for you. The beaver says, if, if he's a king who is safe, this is what the two sisters thought. If he is a king who is safe, they reason, that will certainly be of great comfort in light of the battle being all but lost. The younger sister says, Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver sternly at her. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, and he's the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion. He is the lion. He's the great lion. The older sister then said, ooh, but I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting this lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most people or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe at all, said Lucy. 
Safe? Said Mrs. Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is trying to tell you? Who said anything about Aslan being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Yes. He's fearful. He's a consuming, awesome fire. But at the same time, he is good. And he is loving. And he's full of grace and compassion. So, R.C. Sproul said that as Isaiah cries out now in his terror, he's saying, I am undone because I have a dirty mouth. Why does he go to the mouth? Because someday every human being will stand before God on judgment day. Every one of us will have to give an account before the holy creator of heaven and earth. And I lied. i got to give at least one or two New Testament verses here because Jesus said that on that day, every idle word we have ever spoken will be brought into judgment. That's Matthew 12, 36. That everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, every promise we've ever made and broken, every blasphemous statement that's come from our mouth, every slanderous word that we've ever made towards our neighbor will be brought up on the table. Nothing will be off the table. Jesus said that it's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles us, it's what comes out of our mouth. So God has given us our mouths as vehicles to praise Him, to express His truth, and instead we've used our mouths to lie, to hurt other people, to blaspheme God. Forgive us. Lord, we have dirty mouths. So when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, his, went and his hand just instinctively went to his mouth as he cried out this curse upon himself. In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The seraph went over to the altar where the white hot coals were burning there in the holy place. The coals were so hot that even the angel's flesh couldn't come in contact with them. He had to use tongs. With these tongs, he took one of these white hot coals and he flew over to Isaiah. He, we read in the text that he placed this hot coal on his lips. And the coal was immediately applied to purify his lips, to heal them. To, to heal them for what? To prepare them for the gospel message that he was to give to the nations. Listen to what it says. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. So as Isaiah confesses his sin and that of his people, God's grace, God's grace is immediately applied, and Isaiah's sins are atoned for through the sacrifice on the altar meeting the Levitical ordinances. What God said to Isaiah, it's gone, Isaiah. All of your guilt is gone. You don't have to speak the curse any longer. I'm taking it away. Your sins are forgiven. They are atoned for. 
In closing, Jesus is here this morning. And he is right where you are over the live stream. Whether you're here in the sanctuary or watching us, he is saying, I know, I know everything you've done in your life. I know every wrong thought that you've ever had. I know every careless word that you've spoken. I know every sin you've ever committed. And I know about them and I stand ready to forgive you and wipe the slate clean. If you will ask for his forgiveness, ask him to come into your, your life, ask him to forgive you. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you with the precious blood of Christ that was shed on the cross from this moment forever. And to the believers, to the believers, James 5, 16, you guys know what it says. It says, confess your sins. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. That's why I'm a part of a account. I'm on part of two accountability groups because I can't confess enough. That's why we got to get connected. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession is a, last, a lost art in our day. Because we just want to appear like we've got it all together, right, Al? Like you said, brother, I mean, we look good on the surface, but underneath we're broken. We know that's not the case. And 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I said at the beginning of the message that an awareness of God's holiness and awareness of our sinfulness are preconditions of spiritual life because revival involves awakening. What we wake up to in the light of a revival is our own sinful, hideous, sinful condition and the nature of a holy God which then drives us to our knees in repentance. Let's pray. And as uh, Brother Al comes uh, to, to close us with a song, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us right now. Heavenly Father, it is the flame. It is the flame of our lives to worship you, Lord. Let our lives be as a fragrant offering to you. Our lives, let our lives be the crown, the glory of our souls to adore you, Lord. Only through the blood of Christ, Father God, can we possibly approach you. Holy and awesome God, give us power by your Holy Spirit to help us worship, that we may forget the world, that we may be brought into the fullness of life, be refreshed, comforted, blessed, Give us knowledge of your, of your goodness. Give us knowledge of your holiness because we know it not, Lord. Bring us in the fullness of your, your Holy Spirit today. Give us knowledge of your goodness. Help us to be overawed by your holiness and your greatness, Lord. Give us Jesus who purchased us with his blood. 
that we may not be terrified. We may not be terrified. We may not be terrified, but we would be drawn in to your holiness by your love, by your matchless love, that we may approach you with holy boldness because Jesus Christ, your son, is our mediator, our brother, our interpreter. Lord, he's the branch. He's the lamb of God. He's the one that we glorify today. In him, we are set on high, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us for all of our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Give us a new sense of this gratitude and thankfulness, Lord. Continue to forgive us by that same blood as we come every day to the fountain, Lord, every day, wash us, cleanse us, make us anew, that we may worship you always in spirit and in truth, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. your boiler's out, you're feeling cold, it's time to let God in, make those repairs, because there's work to do, there's work to do, there's a field of harvest that's ready to be brought in, and we are broken, we will always be broken. But we have to let God do that work to heal us, to fix us, to warm us so that we can do that work. I know these times we're, we're tired. <laughs> I feel it. And I know you do too. There's so much going on and there's so much that we are struggling with. Unusual things, things that we're not used to. We got to let God in. Heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me, I am the way. Keep your hand on the plow. When my way gets dark as night, I know the Lord will be my light. Keep your hand on the plow, hold on, hold on, hold on. Keep your hand on the plow, hold on. Talk about me much as you please. Boy, you talk, I'm gonna stay on my knees. Keep your hand on the plow. Hold on. Hold on. 
Appreciate you, Doug. We need, amen, give him some applause. It is easy to avoid hard messages, but we need to hear them. And um, I know that when I first became a believer, I did not want to hear about the holiness of God. I did not want to hear that the... The beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. I, I just wanted to know about the love of God. And, and that's what I needed at that time. But as I've grown as a believer, God is not in a box. I can't put him in a box. You can't put him in a box. Those are hard stories that you shared. But you explain them, but it's still hard. I mean, when, I remember reading when the cart fell and he died. I was just like, what? And so it doesn't all make sense. But God is holy, you know? So, Lord, forgive us for taking him so lightly. You know, we like certain characteristics, other characteristics we don't want to deal with. But God is all those things. And, it, you know, he's been so good to us. He's been so good to our country. But enough is enough. You know, I mean, we, we've talked about it, and even as we prayed, we prayed. Um, there's been a theme in our prayer meeting of repent and return, repent and return. People are getting tired of me. Why do you keep talking about that? Well, because God keeps saying it. And that's my prayer for our nation. I mean, that's, that's our only hope. And so uh, I want to just take a moment. I know we've gone long. I, I'll keep it brief, but. You know, as you read from the book of James, we have to confess. We have to respond. And so just right where you are, just pray with me. None of us are all together. We're all broken. So let's just take a moment. And, and then also as you pray for yourself, pray for our nation. We so need to come back to God. So let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, you said to confess our sins to one another. And Lord, we have to be honest. We have to be real. We are broken. We are sinful people. We sin with what we say, what we think, what we do, what we don't do. As my brother shared, it's been a rough seven months. But Lord, we just ask you to forgive us for our sins. We ask you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we ask you to refocus us on you. Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that doesn't mean just to be running afraid, but to have reverence for you. You are an awesome God. And so help us to not mistreat you or to treat you any old kind of way. And Lord, we pray and continue to cry out to you for our nation. Lord, only you can turn us back. But we pray for repentance and return. Lord, we will not heal our nation. You are the one that heals our nation, but we will, you will not heal our nation until we repent and return. And so, Lord, thank you that we can do that, and we've been doing that in our prayer meetings on behalf of our nation, as, as the prophets did for Israel. And so help us to be about that. And, Lord, help us to live it out. As my brother said, we need your healing, we need your touch, and then we want to be about your business, what you called us to do to bring others the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Harvest is ripe. Use us, Lord, for us for, our, for your glory, even in our brokenness. Use us and go with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming uh, this morning. God bless you. Pray that God would use you this week. And Doug, give him Doug one more hand because that's a that's a blessing. Great word this morning. God bless you all.